Welcome back to Fish's Call Sheet. In the past, we talked about props and the things that actors touch. Now we're going to talk about the actual set itself, positioning of furniture, and get into what a set dresser does. And on this episode, we're talking to set dresser extraordinaire, Charlie Nicholson, who is gracious enough to explain to us what that is and the complexity of his job. So welcome to Fish's Call Sheet, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I love you, Michael. I love you, too. I'm, I'm honored to call you friend and that you call me friend. Uh, well, what set dressers do is we work for set decorators. Um, and uh, the, uh, let me give you a little context, because a lot of people don't know this. The top of the department, the head of the department, it's the, the art department is an umbrella term. There's a production designer. And under the production designer is the art director and the set decorator. Under the art director is construction, paint, plastering, carpeting, uh, all of the structural pieces that go into a set, whether it's a hospital room, a bowling alley, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the story and the, whatever the script and the story combined demand is the art department comes in and they build the shell. When they're completed with that part, then the set decorating team headed by the set decorator, we are set dressers, we come in and we, we bring in, we layer in the personality. We start with the big pieces first. So again, if it's a living room, it's all the big pieces of furniture that would go in a living room. And then based again on the storyline, we begin to layer in individual personality pieces. If there's kids, there's toys on the floor. Uh, it, again, it's all, we all read the scripts. So we all have input based on our take on the script. When that's complete, and that can take 45 minutes to two weeks, depending upon how involved, how large the set is, how many rooms it, it might be. There might be a scene where the camera will go through five or six rooms at a time, where it's a tracking scene. Steadicam, for example, does a lot of that sort of thing. So that means we will have had to have dressed five rooms. That can take up to two weeks, or in our context, which is uh, multi-camera sitcom, uh, sometimes we can throw it together in 45 minutes and boom, we're done. When that's complete, and I work with that team of people to do that, to do all that layering in. When the director and the actors come in, I am then assigned to them for the duration of the shooting schedule. I become sort of a project manager. And I work the, with the director and the actors. Movement is called blocking. Emotional intent is called direction. And so what the director will do, will spend some time with the actors working on what the direction of the emotional intent is. Then they do, they get the scene up on its feet. And based on the blocking or the movement, that's where I come in. And I will move the furniture around based on the director and the actor's needs. I have input into that because my experience will tell me when something might be either a liability or something might be an asset. I also filter information between the director and the actors and the writers. And quite often, confidentially, a lot of people have notes who have no business giving notes. <laughs> but <laughs> really, literally. But I have to graciously accept their notes. And so some I filter, some I don't to be perfectly candid. But um, the further out of the concentric circles, I don't tend to give those notes much weight, but the inner circles definitely. Uh, but I will direct those notes to the appropriate departments, whether it's my department as set decorating, 
or the prop department. Uh, props is anything that the actor holds. Set decorating is anything that's in the actor's environment. And I will take notes for carpeting. I will take notes for special effects for all those people. By extension, that's why I become a project manager because I'm the one who has all this information from what we call the talent, which I think is a bit of a misnomer because we're all talented. That being said, that's what we call the actors and the director. We call it the talent. That's what I do. And I work from the very beginning of rehearsal all the way through when it's being shot to the hours or days that it takes just to wrap it and strike it, meaning box it all up and get rid of it. So is that pretty much rounded up, Michael? You really laid it out perfect. I think one of the things I'd like to highlight is kind of the pre-planning stage, if we can touch on that, because you know, you guys go through the scripts, you come up with all these ideas, you come up with suggestions, and then they change, right? As the script changes or someone says, that's a great chair, but uh, it's, it's too big, it's too small, it's too orange, it's too, right. right? Or I always in my head secretly pictured a blue chair. Right. And then that has to happen. And then it's really subtle, particularly for you, because you're constantly making adjustments from scene to scene, is a chair may need to be tweaked 10 degrees to one side or the other to open up for a camera shot. The close-up may need you to adjust it. So you normally put down marks. Do you want to explain what marks are for individual well, scenes? There's no, there's no standardization when it comes to how to alter or change, uh, oh, that's better lighting, how to alter or change the degree which objects move. My system is I take a little piece of tape and I put the, if it's a chair, I put the letter C. If it's a table, the letter T, so on and so forth. And uh, I will also put the scene letter or scene number on that piece of tape because uh, here's a little inside information when it comes to multicam. Multicam uh, or what, what the public knows as situation comedy, we call it technically based on the format it's shot in. Uh, but sitcoms are shot specifically living rooms, the way they're set up, You'll notice that the front door, there's, a, there's a, a beeline between the front door and the kitchen. It's always that way because so much of the traffic in sitcoms um, goes through that channel. And so there will be the couch, which is upstage, and the coffee table, which is downstage. And there's usually that aisle. What I do, if, if the character is sitting, if a character is sitting on the couch and, and she picks up the remote from the table, the table has to be close enough, in reality, it has to be close enough like it would really be for her to pick up the remote. However, if there's a scene where later on, if there's a scene where two of the actors are making a beeline from the front door to the kitchen, I have to either move the coffee table down or the sofa upstage. Generally speaking, it's the coffee table is downstage because the sofa is larger and, and, the, and the camera will catch it if it's suddenly upstage. So we'll bring the coffee table downstage because it fools the audience. The audience will never know. And so I broaden that space between these two pieces of furniture. So I put a piece of tape down for each scene and then I mark it in my log so that I know to adjust the table based on blocking. And so I try to get tape that is as close as subtle to the color and the texture of the floor. <laughs> because when I was doing Floor House, Netflix, and it was the dawning of sort of this confluence of 
not the dawning, but, but, but it was the first time I had worked with streaming and HD at the same time. And so uh, the production company had their own, meaning the unit that is shooting the thing, they have their own editors, which was fine. But then the Netflix editors came in and they said, we can see your marks on the floor. So they have editors who sweep every single scene after we're done with our unit editing and doing whatever we do, color correction and all that. We then hand the product over to Netflix where they again do scrubbing bubbles. So they came to me and they said uh, very nicely, they said, we can see your marks. And so I had a meeting with them about how to come to a common ground and so it's held me in good stead all these years. It's a good way of, of marking for me. Oftentimes what will happen is a director will come in, particularly in sitcoms, directors, and I'm, I'm not minimizing the responsibility of the director at all. However, that being said, in that particular format, the director is more um, on the crew than they are captain of the ship. In television in particular, the, the, the showrunner and the executive producer and the network and then so on and so forth, they are the captains of the ship. And the director's, the director's influence, while creatively is vast, authority is finite. We can touch on that from the shift of versus like say a single camera mm -hmm. where the director has an elevated responsibility and then on a film a director oftentimes has complete autonomy to make a decision and, and change things and i think that's where elite status that we give to film directors comes from mm -hmm. film the writer gets very little say but on television especially if you're a showrunner or executive producer you have a lot of say and and sometimes complete authority because you created these characters and you have the voice and the power to share it correct and so sometimes what will happen it happened I think it was the first season of the Connors. It's where Jackie goes crazy in the kitchen. And it was a progressive, sometimes what'll happen for, for me is that my work becomes a character in the episode. And that happens when there is progressive real-time changes in a given set. And so that happened in that episode where in the span of the 22 minutes or whatever it is, I think it's 22 minutes, the episode is 22 minutes. Um, in that span of 22 minutes, the kitchen changes three times and it has to happen in real time. And the reason it has to happen in real time is because we're shooting in front of an audience. Right. And, and so, it changes dramatically step to step yeah, to give you that, that growing character of pressure and anxiety and her, her overwhelming feel. And if the set doesn't show it, it doesn't transfer. buy it. And so the first, there were, it was three changes. And the first two changes, and again, going from subtle to not so subtle to absolute maniacal, the first two we had rehearsed, we had, we had, um, we had been given approval by was Andy Ackerman and, uh, and Bruce Helford. They gave us approval for the first two looks, but no one had a chance to approve the third and final look, which was the critical one. Right. Just wasn't time to do that. So uh, my department gave me three set dressers. They gave me all the equipment that I needed to affect this change. It was big. All the cupboards had to be completely open. Normally we don't dress inside all the cupboards. Normally what we do 
is we're given the script, we see the actor's gonna open the cupboard, we make sure that cupboard is whatever in it. Right. And so, but in this case, all the cupboard drawers are open. So we had all the stuff that the Connors would have accumulated over 35 to 40 years in their cupboards. And it's complex too, because I, I wanna point out, like in the case of the Connors, you're talking about a poor middle-class family who's accumulated a lot of stuff over time. Absolutely. So you can't just run out and buy pots and pans or place settings and things like that. Let's have a story. Everything. Yeah. And what we do, by the way, not to get too sidetracked by that, but what we do when we bring things in, and that's a great point to make, we actually discuss where this would have come from, which grandmother, grandfather, aunt, ex, whomever to decide how this thing got to where it is. And I think that's amazing for people, if I can jump in, to understand from a set decorating, it's not just hanging something on the wall. It's hanging a piece that is authentic to that world and this moment and what's happening. And I think that's the beauty of, of how great our set decorating department is. It's one of the reasons why I want to have you on is to highlight the detail in which you dive into this world and really make this world viable for an audience. Now, you, thank you for bringing that up. And I remember the first time that happened to me was, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago. It was some uh, long forgotten job and it was a husband and wife and they hadn't spoken in years, really. It was a sad scene. It was their bedroom. I decided that he would have, because he, there's a reference to him bowling in the script. We never see a bowling ball. We never see any of that stuff, but there's a reference. It's a line. So I decided he would have as his lamp, a baseball lamp, something. I remember it was a baseball helmet because if he bowls, that tells me sports athlete. It's, and she had something delicate on hers. And from those two lamps, I built each nightstand. She has a romance novel. He has a whiskey. I decided one of them has uh, prescription medication. The other one has an ashtray. I built this whole world of two completely separate people. There was a closet built into the set, but there was never action in, in the closet. But I decided that I would dress the closet out because you never know. If there's a door, you, you better dress behind it. And that's where I put his bowling ball in a bowling case up on a shelf. And sure enough, when the camera came in, they loved what I did. Not that I wanted the pat on the back, but I felt like my artistic instinct was spot on when I gave myself the nanosecond to step into the character's shoes because I'm telling the character's story, not mine. When I put the bowling ball and the bowling bag on the shelf, I did it just because I knew that stuff had to be in the closet. And sure enough, when we came in to shoot this thing, instead of they had the actor get out of the bed and open up the closet. And the actor looked in and he grabbed the bowling bag. And it had a bowling ball in it, which is important for us to do for the actors. We need to give the actors the grist to do their work. If we don't give them the bowling ball in the bowling bag, then we are cheating the actor. And then by extension, we're cheating the audience. It's a powerful um, community thing. I always say this is so much more collaborative. It's one of the goals of this show is to really share how much art goes into each aspect of this. It's overlooked because things are happening so rapidly, but a real world has to feel real to you. And if it doesn't, it will jump out. And even if you're not aware of what it is that's taking you out of that comfort zone or the suspension of disbelief, it just doesn't ring true to you. 
Absolutely. So this third uh, scene in this kitchen, the progressive thing, uh, Bruce and Andy, the director and the showrunner, did not have a chance to see what I had done prior to the reveal before the audience. I was, I now again, I had a full team. We had vetted all the set dressing as we've just sort of laid out to you. And so the coffee maker played a key part in this. It's referenced earlier in the very first scene as the coffee maker. There's a whole joke built around this coffee maker. So what I did for the final scene is I had the coffee maker where Jackie landed it, but I built it up and I packed stuff around it so it looked like the Matterhorn. And the coffee maker was right in the middle and the very last minute, there was a beat up old, and it looked tragic and it needed to look, it needed to look desperate. And, but it, there was something missing and I didn't know what it was. It, it felt okay, but there was just some, I wasn't sure what the element was. And then I saw on this um, uh, rolling rack we had, there was a, <laughs> it was a beat up old princess phone. And I took this beat up old princess phone and I slapped it on top of the coffee maker and suddenly it made it funny. It, to me, it made it funny. I laughed at it. I wasn't, I didn't do it because I thought it would make someone else laugh. If you do it because you think someone else is gonna laugh, then it's gonna fail. But if you do it because it made you laugh, right. then it's gonna work. Share the experience, it usually works. If you're right. trying to pull one over on everybody else, it's usually when it goes bad. Correct, so it made me laugh before we did this reveal. And the first thing they said when they walked in was, oh my God, that phone is so funny. And so I knew I had landed square that the humor, it wasn't a cheap joke, it was pathos. It added a, um, a melancholy, it added everything. It was the cherry on the cake. And so, because the audience needs to, needs to know that they are safe in their journey inside Jackie's world. And it worked really, really well. So that's a good example of how my work will become a character in a show. It doesn't always happen, but it does happen. You know, you touched on prop houses, right? So all over this town, but all over the country and the world, there are places that specifically hold on to old equipment, old, you know, a little bit of everything. I mean, it, it would be a hoarder's dream times uh, the best journey down memory lane you could go on. is, And you see things that you're like, my grandparents had that. But the art is to go in and to pick the right pieces and get the right combination to make it work, to make it authentic, to, to make it real. We don't overthink it. If, once you begin to overthink it, then you're going down a rabbit hole. If you walk in, if the kid is a, uh, it's his first apartment, and so he's in his early 20s, and he's got a girlfriend or whatever, and we hash out the information that we've gotten from the production meeting, and then the set decorator will assign us all different prop houses to go to to pull stuff. Uh, and I'm just making this up as we go along, but let's say the kid, again, you know, we find out from the production meeting that he, that he has a girlfriend and it's his first apartment and so on and so forth. So we go into the prop house and we decide, oh, you know what? He bought this at the yard sale, but his mom got him this. So the blender is going to be brand new, but right. the coffee maker is going to be beat up. And so you begin to decide because you step for a moment, you step into the character shoes. And then there's another aspect is you don't get the blender and the coffee maker the same color because we also have to honor how camera as an audience member will interpret the things that we put on the set. 
within the cloak of art, we also have to honor the technical aspect of getting something we do, we avoid absolute black or absolute white, unless those are characters written into the show as far as chromatic aspects. A good example of that would be Nip Tuck. Nip Tuck, the last two seasons of Nip Tuck, all, almost all the walls and almost all the furniture was white because Ryan Murphy wanted to tell a story using that color. And so it played a character. But unless white plays a character, it can be distracting for a variety of technical reasons. Same with absolute black or dark blue. And so if I'm going to get a coffee maker and a toaster, for example, I'm going to get a toaster that's going to be a brushed nickel where we don't see a reflection. And I'm going to get a coffee maker. It might be black or it might be some whatever darker color. And then the blender is going to be a lighter color. And so I'm going to balance out so the audience is not sucked into all this one color behind the actor because that's upstaging the actor. We have to be really careful when we're dressing a set. As soon as I get something and I think, oh, that'll look really cool, that's usually a warning. Right. Is, yeah. Because it, it's no longer about the project or the character. It becomes about what you like or your aesthetic, right? Correct. Getting finishes, right? Like, uh, you know, a brush nickel versus a shiny you know, steel appliance or chrome. And then I think something that people don't realize is then your director of photography who kind of oversees the overall look or one of your lighting people may come to you and be like, okay, we have to dull that down. There's a bunch of tricks of the trade. You want to touch on any of that? As well, there are tricks of the trade. There's all sorts of things that you can do, but I, but I preface it by saying that's time consuming. The reason we'll avoid picking stuff that is either shiny or reflective is not is is yes because there's an aesthetic consideration to it and also because of the reasons I touched on earlier because of absolute black or absolute white but also because we have to bear in mind to alter it or change it while we're shooting takes time and time is money. I actually lost the painting behind me because it was too shiny. Um, <laughs> what we can do is if this, I would move this like that. Right, to adjust the angle so that right. the light hits yeah, it in, right. yeah, yeah, in yeah. such a way right. that it doesn't catch or reflect. And I think that's one of those things. All of these things are fine-tuned. And again, from one scene to the next, depending on where the camera is and where the characters are, you may have to adjust those things. And I think oh, people overlook these things, but you may have to move a dozen things in a single set from one, one scene to another, or sometimes from take to take. I'll have to raise the couch on blocks because the camera, is, because the camera angle demands aspect ratio between the two pieces of furniture is changed so much because of the angle of the camera. Suddenly, now I have to raise the table up because just the angle of the camera demands it. And it does with artwork too. It demands that I shift away from the wall on the right or away from the wall on the left in order to, we call it flare or kickback is when the light hits it in the wrong way. And what the, the words we do not want to hear from a director or a director of photography, or even worse, a showrunner is this look. 
what's that thing? Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in, in set dressing, anytime they start looking in and looking <laughs> so real close, right? <laughs> they, they, everything starts to squish and furrow right. their brow, and then the next right. question is, what is this? You're like, oh, no, what is it, right? Oh, yeah, and, and, and they really don't care about what it is. No, so it just it draws the eye or, or just rid of that. So you have to learn to interpret their words. It's very much like court intrigue. You don't want to stand there and you don't want to go, oh, well, that's a blah, blah, blah. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care. What is that? Then when they do this, what is that thing? That means get rid of it. Right. Or, yeah. Or um, what is that thing that makes my actor look like they have antennas? Or, right. right? Because it always comes out as something it's else. growing out of his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we shoot on location a lot of times, the first, this is going to be terrible, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal a secret. So we shoot on location. Now, let's say we're shooting in this house. It's a lovely home in Pasadena. And uh, we're going to be shooting in the living room, the dining room, and a bedroom. Right. And so and that's it. So we have taken um, really carefully with loving hands, we've taken all the homeowner's stuff and we've put it, stacked it neatly, boxed it up, whatever, put it in whatever rooms we're not using. And those rooms are called the forbidden room. So then we've taken our stuff and brought our stuff in to turn this house into something that it wasn't. And so I'm the onset dresser. The first thing I do when I get there is look in the forbidden room because <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Because what's gonna happen is I know it's the first scene up, it's a tense love scene between the young couple, they're on the couch. I know I've been doing this long enough to know where the camera angles are gonna be. There's gonna be one camera angle and it's gonna be low. We're gonna see low and we're, I actually, maybe I overheard it, but also my, training has taught me that they're going to want to see low. They're going to want to see high and they're going to want to see low. And it's probably going to be a tracking shot. And so there's a thing the decorator got. It looks beautiful if you're just in a real room. Right. It's the thing, it's like this art deco thing with a little bronze fairy candy dishy kind of a thing. I know that when we shoot low, it's going to look like it's growing out of the actress's chin. So I don't move it yet. I wait, I go into the forbidden room. I find the homeowner has this beautiful cut glass bowl, low, and I go and I fill it with grapes or candies or pennies or whatever I can find that also belong to the homeowner. And I stash it and I wait for the director of photography to go, set dressing, what's that thing growing out of her chin? And so, cause I don't want to tip my hand yet. I want to be the hero. I need, and I don't want to be the hero cause of my ego. It's just that I want to be the hero cause I need to gain points. That's the only reason. So what I do is I pull the little bronze fairy out, I put the little bowl already in, and they'll go, God, can you work any faster? And suddenly, I have grip, camera, and electric are my best friends because I pleased the boss. Because you planned ahead. Because you were aware, and you were aware of your surroundings, and you knew this may not work. I can't, you know, that's an exactly. <laughs> where I'm, in, I'm not going to go, oh, well, that's a 1920s, um, when they go, Hey, set dressing, what's that thing growing out of her chin? I'm not going to go, oh, well, you know her, give the whole backstory. I'm yeah. just going to go, bam, bam, okay, done. Right. <laughs> you know? It's referenced on page 27, if you had read the script the same <laughs> as I did, right? <laughs> which is totally, you could, it's valid, but it would be a bad idea. No, well, it is that sometimes there's a case where it is a piece of set dressing that is referenced in a subsequent scene. And so we had a dish, it was on the Connors. We had a dish from Cracker Barrel. Mm -hmm. 
uh, last season. And so we put it on the set and it was hideous and it, and it, and of course, and it, it got the wrong attention for scene A, let's say it was for scene A, but in, in, in scene D, it's actually referenced. And it's when a piece of set dressing becomes a prop. It's a piece of set dressing. We establish it in A sitting on the countertop. And then in scene D, the actor picks it up. So it becomes then a prop. So it's fine when it was a prop, but it looked really bad when it was a piece of set dressing. The director in the rehearsal process, when we're camera blocking, uh, which means that we are now bringing the cameras in to do their movement based on the actor's movement. And so they go, what's that white thing behind her head? And I said, that's the Cracker Barrel plate. Oh, I guess it has to be there. Yeah, it has to be there because that's where he picks it up from in D. Oh, all right. Well, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. And so that's where you negotiate a little bit based on, you know, and then you figure it out. And sometimes those can be rabbit holes. Sometimes the most seemingly innocuous thing can stop production in its tracks. And you're down for an hour while they try to figure out what to do with the Cracker Barrel plate or whatever. But more often than not, they'll acquiesce to the needs of whatever you got and they'll move on. I want people to look at a piece of film or, or a piece of video or a clip from a show and to start looking around and looking at all of the artistry that really is going into that moment. Life is full of moments. Life is made up of moments. And what we try to do is create the most authentic, engaging moments. And it's the artistry of all of you that makes that collaborative process possible. Occasionally, and it's happened very rarely in my career, but last year on the Connors, a moment where it happens with grip and electric, it happens with set dressing and props, and it happens with hair and makeup, where we have to switch roles. Because it just happens that way. And so you kind of have to switch roles. So last year on the Connors, we have on this iconic couch, the iconic Afghan. And the iconic Afghan is a piece of set dressing because it just sits there like an Afghan on a couch. But it became a prop when Emma, when Harris, played by Emma, picks it up. So it's in her hands and now it's on the couch. And then she wraps a blanket, which was also a piece of set dressing, which became a prop around her head, which then becomes costumes and hair. Because these items, this blanket and this afghan, have to be reset to the beginning of the scene where they're set dressing. What happened with this actress is, and it was just because I was the set dresser, I reset them, but I also, because we're doing an insert, we're in, in our world, we'll do a pickup in the middle of the scene. So because I photographed my blankets on the actor, I had the pictures where we were picking this up from. So the hair person came in, but she didn't have pictures. Right. And we're putting the blanket back on the actor's head. And I said, do I have your permission to touch her hair? And she said, absolutely. So we work together in this moment where I'm now doing set dressing props and hair and costumes. And the reason I'm doing all of these hats is not because I want to be well-versed in these crafts. It's just that the actor, it's a very tense scene right. between the characters, between mother and daughter. 
And so I'm experienced enough to know that the less people, the better. Let me do this. That's why I ask for your help a lot of times because you happen to be there rather than getting another you know, whatever, orangutan in the mix and you're qualified and I'll say, Michael, help me with this table. Right. Just because it's less people involved in this. You know what you're doing. I can depend upon you. But it's the same thing. When it all works together, it's a beautiful thing. Jeremy Armstrong used the word flow. When everyone flows together, right? That's the beauty of a, a set working well is when people just put the project first and just go about doing their job at the best of their ability. We're called the company. And we are the ones who actually are working. All of us, actors included, all of us are extensions of camera. It's so fluid. It's so... We're conspiring to entertain. I like that. Conspiring to entertain. And all these people next to me, like when we're standing at the monitor watching the product being shot, I am making a movie about furniture. I'm oversimplifying, but I'm making a movie about furniture. The guy standing next to me is making a movie about costumes. The girl on the other side, the woman on the other side, I should say, on the other side is making a movie about hair. But if we're really good at our craft, we're also watching each other's movies being made. Right. Because every Friday night, the audience comes in four or five hours on a Friday night or 22 minutes when the network broadcast the episode, these people are taken away from their day because they're watching these other people in their day and we're entertaining them. And that's the gold. The gold is that we're, we may not be curing cancer, but we're making sure that maybe somebody with cancer is laughing. Yeah. That we can take them out of their regular life and either transport them to a place where they get to take a break from their world or relate to something that they've had difficulty dealing with. And this is a safe, and especially in our case, a humorous way right. to enjoy that experience. And to, to share a visceral human experience through this imagined art. And that's the beauty of what we get to do. It is. And in nine times out of 10, when something is not, when there's a problem, the most elegant fix is the quick fix. And we were shooting, it was last season, we were shooting Darlene. It was supposed to be winter. Everything is covered in snow. And we have a thing outside the front door, the backing, it's a translight. Meaning if it's shot from the front, it's daytime. And if you put the lights on the backside, then it's nighttime, but it's the same image. And so, and I don't know what they are, 40 feet wide by 30 feet high on that rubber material that they roll. So the problem with this translate is that it's a photograph, as you well know, it's just this giant photograph and it's summer. We're all watching, it was in front of a live audience and we're all watching and I'm the one who noticed it over her shoulder. She's standing at the front door. All the landscaping is covered with snow, but I can see this translate right over her shoulder and I see summertime with right. the lawn. And so I said it to the director of photography and I said, um, uh, the backing is summer. I got to fix that. Was I went behind her and there was a tree to my right, her left, covered, it was, it was a leafless tree but it was covered in snow. And all I did was move it into frame two feet and boom, suddenly it's fully winter. Being able to fix that thing and not have to shut production down for a while while we figure that out or draw such monumental attention to the fact that something may have either been overlooked or didn't match. 
occasionally it'll be overlooked by everyone from stem to stern and for whatever reason it's overlooked and so uh but occasionally also it'll happen where it just happens yeah and so we go to the editor you know as long as they have a heads up i try to use that that's a luxury item when i have to go to visual effects or i have to go to the editor and say hey here's this it won't match charlie what's the best part of your job there's so many bests my parents were both artists and they never were able to express their art because of their fears the best part of my art is that I am supported and loved enough to be able to express my art through my fear and through my doubt. And I'm able to honor my art and God willing, I'll be doing it until I draw my last breath. Oh, you are masterful at what you do. Thank you, sir. On the flip side of that, what's the hardest part of your job? Physiologically, the hardest part is walking on my feet for 14 hours a day on an unforgiving floor because of the effect that has on my body. And so I've learned to take care of myself. There are things that I do to take care of myself. So that's a physiological thing. I have to tell you, Michael, it's all part and parcel. I can't, I, isolating what is hard or difficult and pulling, that's like Jenga. Yeah, it, 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 that's the thing for me. I mean, you and I talk about this privately. So to share it publicly is nothing's going to be perfect and nothing's going to be great all the time. But we love what we do so much that we embrace every moment. And, it, and it's looking for the bright side of things or the way to fix a moment, uh, an issue or what's going on, because, you know, even this too shall pass and that you love all aspects of what the art is and getting to be part of it. And I know you and I talk about it all the time because we just love, we love giving each other a hard time. We love being sarcastic to each other and playing back and forth, but we really love what we get to do. And are there going to be bumps? There's going to be bumps in any part of your life, but you wouldn't trade your life for those small bumps along the way. No, that's why this, um, this time of reflection is so valuable because it's taught me, I don't, I'm not, I've never been cavalier about my career. I have taken a lot of stuff for granted, which I'm learning now, <laughs> you know, that one can really not afford to take anything for granted. I think the hardest part of my work is uh, when the job is over. That's the hardest part. When a project ends, that's the hardest for me is when a project ends and now you have to go out and find the next thing and this thing that you were loving and building and artistically sharing through has to go away to make room for something else. And that's faith. That's about faith that, you know, that the universe will provide. But I think it is the most difficult part because I go through a withdrawal after a job is over. It's like every week is the beginning of it. The Monday is the beginning of high school and Friday is graduation. <laughs> so, you know, with the clicks and everything involved, it's exactly. Yeah. And I, I may be counting my chickens before they hatch. I hope I'm not. I always have such self-doubt about whether I'm up to the task and then I'm invited back. You are always up to the task. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to share not just your department, but you in particular early on in this is 
I really admire. I mean, we haven't worked together that long. It's a really complex job. So to be able to navigate that kind of seamlessly, you do a masterful job of that. Thank you, sir. This is a question I don't know the answer to. How long have you been in this business, Charlie? I've been set dressing for 27 years, uh, but I've been in this business. I did casting. Uh, I was an actor. Uh, I'm a song and dance man. I was born and raised in Hollywood. And so I've been in and around sound stages since I was a little kid. I, as a matter of fact, it was a real problem for me because my first exposure to film was actually being on, there was a little stage, it was a um, really B-rated Frankenstein movie that my mom's boyfriend was in. It was maybe in 1965. And it was shot at a little stage on Santa Monica Boulevard in, in um in Hollywood. And so, oh, that's better. I keep on adjusting my lighting. Um, and so my first exposure to any movies was watching them being made. And so when I started uh, as an actor, I was more in tuned with what was going on behind the camera than I was the storytelling part. And it's taken a lot of hard work for me to watch a movie without knowing what's going on behind the camera. So all my life, there's the short version. Yeah, you're, you're like me. You're a lifer. Having seen behind the curtain essentially your whole life, I think it, it draws you in a different way. So I guess I, what I would ask you is probably when was that first moment you knew you wanted to be in this business or in the industry? Was there a moment? Was there something you watched that changed you? It was. It was a beautiful short film that took place in um, Christmas in Berlin in 1936. And it was a microcosm about the balance and the shift of power. We were shooting it in July in a stage just north of LA that had no air conditioning. In the stage, it was brutally hot, but we had built these, and I had never done any of this before. We had built out of chicken wire and one by three, a bunch of troughs hanging from the top of the stage and on a pulley system to affect the snow coming down. And the snow was made of, I think, soap flakes or potato flakes or something. I didn't know any of the language. I knew nothing. Uh, some guy hired me because they needed a body. I walked onto that stage and I see Christmas Berlin 1936. And I was, because it was the first time I was a laborer, I was re-enchanted. Although I had been around it, I don't know, maybe I was ready to really appreciate it for the first time as, because I was suddenly becoming a craftsperson and not just an actor focused on my lines or not just somebody, a disinterested person. I actually had some skin in the game this time. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. What they had done in transforming this little stage into this town square in Berlin really was amazing. We built the troughs with the snow and the very first shot is this little girl, um, this teenage girl on a bicycle going through the snow. My boss said, okay, I want you to, now, now that we're all finished dressing the sets, I want you to stand behind the camera, and if the director says he wants a cigar in the actor's mouth, you have to have a cigar in the actor's mouth faster than when the word cigar came out of the director's mouth. And I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> First of all, there's no guy in this scene. Second of all, there's no cigar. So I'm, I'm taking literally, what he just said to me absolutely baffled me, and I'm scared to death. But I got to stand behind the camera. Okay, whatever. I'm so mortified that I'm going to screw something up and I'm going to miss whatever. So I'm standing behind the camera and we shoot. It's a tracking shot, which I didn't know what that was. It's when the camera's um, anchored. Right, exactly this. 
And so I know you know. I was, but um, for, for for people watching, is it tracks somebody across a movement, so it's kind of a pan sweep move. A dolly shot. A dolly shot will move with the actor. Right. But a tracking this is just is pivoting. Correct. It's a tracking shot of the girl on the bike. La 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 la. Somebody is doing the snow. We've layered the snow in on the ground. Apparently it's going to be heavy snow. La la la. It's all coming down. It's great. Well, they changed the lens because now we're going to do what I did not know. Going in tighter means we're going to do a close up. And so we go in tighter. They've changed the lens and the filter. And now we're going to see closer up on the girl on the bike. We do the same thing again. And again, where's the cigar? Where's the guy? I'm baffled. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm so scared that I'm going to screw this up. The camera operator, we do this shot with the new filter and the new lens, and he says, the snow looks like shit. Now, he said it that way for two reasons. One, so that he uh, is not held responsible if no one fixes it, because it's not his job, but he needs it noted that he made mention that the snow looks like shit. So if, if his boss or somebody higher up asks him later, why does the snow not look right? Correct. I said that when we were doing it, but this is the best we had. Exactly. So he was covering his ass. I don't know what happened. The world opened up for me just then. I saw a rake up against the wall. I grabbed the rake. The box of fake snow was sitting next to me. I put a handful of the box, uh, I, I put a handful of the snow on the rake and we did this next tracking shot. Again, the close on the girl. And I boomed the rake over the camera and went with the cameras. It was pivoting. And the camera operator turned around and looked at me and he went, that was great. And I was like, I, I have chills right now. It was almost 30 years ago. Yeah. And I thought, that's the cigar. Yeah. That's it's and the I, magic, right? Yeah, you, you don't know what you're going to need. And you don't know what's missing. No. you have until, no it's, until it's missing. And then suddenly, it's there. It was my aha moment. And I had an aha moment with John uh, Goodman when we were shooting the rain in the basement. It becomes the rain is a, is a character. Right. So in that final scene where the rain goes from two inches to six inches to 11 inches or whatever it was. And we built the basement in that tank where, where John and T Barrett and I felt like water mammals at a petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> we did because everyone was coming to the ledge and pointing at us. But anyway, the script in that episode, the script was written that uh, John, uh, that Dan is desperately trying to salvage these five different boxes of memorabilia so they don't get wet. So props vetted different sizes from the writers and la la la, everything's fine. We get in there on a Wednesday and we're doing the run through and my department had dressed the basement to make it look like the Connors basement, 35 years of stuff. And way in the back in the basement was a dining room chair, a, more of a formal than the Connors have. And it was upside down on a chest of drawers, but it had a, a material seat to it. It was more, more of a real dining room chair. And so um, Whitney was, what's Whitney's last name? I can't remember. Whitney Cummings. Yeah, Whitney Cummings. Whitney was standing there. And so she said, they decided, they realized their error was the boxes are not telling a story of what he is salvaging. They just look like boxes. Right, they're generic. You, you, from the from the audience's perspective, you don't know what's in them, so you're not attached to them as much. Right. There's nothing at stake. We need to have the stakes have got to be a lot higher in this scene. That's where I become a prop guy because now they want things in the basement that are visually give us visual context. 
So they said, do you have anything that looks like it's just about to go under the water? And I grabbed this chair that was upside down and I put it in the water and the water was a quarter of an inch from, from going over the seat. And everyone stopped and they went, oh my God, that's perfect. Right. Just one of those moments where, where I become one with the art. That's what it is. Where I lose myself. And, and we lose titles, right? you transcend all of that and in the moment yep. you heighten and empower the art. Right. I serve the art through the next, through the course of that day and the following day, the five boxes became five things that John and I worked on together to make sure that the progression, that the tension would progress. It tells an overarching story that really set the tone for what was kind of that season and the end of that season. Correct. And again, it's about losing self, about losing the, what will they think of me? And none of that matters when the channel is open to become the art, to just become an extension of the art. That Friday when the episode is over, why the withdrawal is so bad? Because we become addicted to... The magic moment. That, that's what I look, it, it's the moment of truth. It's the moment of reality. It's the moment of challenge. It's all of those things. It's, you know, it's the quintessential uh, hero's journey all in a moment, right? Great way of putting it. Yeah, it is the hero's journey. And we can be proper stewards for the audience's emotional journey. If we tell the story from our authentic self, we become proper stewards for them. Oh, it's so true. You know, I worked on a show that had to do with, um, it was a Netflix show called uh, Alexa and Katie. In it, Alexa has cancer. We had kids who had cancer that would come see the show. And I, disc I discounted it a little bit when I first started because I started the second season and I thought it was going to be sort of that oversaturated format, formula for cranking out, you know, kids doing dangerous things without adult supervision. Except this, they get a lot of this from the adults. But Alexa and Katie was different. And Alexa and Katie was telling the story to kids. But you have to be really careful when you're telling a story to kids. And so they did it in a beautiful way. And there was an episode where it was three episodes in a dress shop. And my department had dressed the inside of the dressing rooms, which we see, and the wall space between the dressing rooms with dresses that are for sale. It's a high-end dress shop. And the very last scene when our four characters, the two mothers and two daughters, come out of these dressing rooms wearing these way over the top dresses, I decided at the last minute to take all of the colorful dresses off the walls of the dressing rooms and replace them all with neutral tone to not get in the way of these characters' dresses popping when they came out of the dressing rooms. Because what happens in the script is everything's fun and funny and everyone's laughing and then suddenly, really in a sophisticated way, the story would turn and we would see into this girl struggling with her cancer survival. They did it in a beautiful way, but it would spin on a dime. And that was the moment in the episode when they come out wearing these dresses, that was the moment where it would spin. And it was a big change. Getting rid of all these dresses was a big change. I didn't have time. I asked the script supervisor. I said, what's the time difference between C and J? And she said about 45 minutes of story time. 
And I said, great, that'll justify the store clerk coming in and changing out and restocking all these dresses. Because you have to honor the story, the narrative time. That's another key element of our job, checking with the script supervisor to make sure that the story, the narrative time fits what my idea is going to be. And so it did. So I went in there and I replaced all these dresses and I put on the neutral tones and I was kind of nervous, but I knew as the artist that I was onto something authentic. And I thought, I got to do this. So I go in and I do it and they shoot the scene and that's beautifully acted and really tearful and, you know, heighten the comedy. If you heighten the comedy, then you heighten the drama. Always, right? Everything. High stakes makes everything grow. Everything has to be, but it has to be organically high. False. You have to know where your organic limit is and hit that. And so we shoot the scene and the showrunner, Heather, called me over and she said, did you change all the dresses between the dressing rooms and inside the dressing rooms before we shot Jay? I said, I did. Was that okay? And she got tears in her. I got tears in my eyes. Uh, (sighs) She said, it's more than okay. Yeah. You found the moment, right? And I think that's part of what we do too, is to be able to give people those moments. The moment, the first time a mom or a dad sees their child, the idea of someone fighting for their life, pure joy of getting your first job or your first car, right? Like all of these experiences, I think, are so universal for us. They're archetypal in a way. But to be able to share those moments and make them ring authentic is the real challenge of what we do. Absolutely. And again, to touch on making sure that the, the, especially if it's bad news, if it's bad news followed by a joke, yeah, you have to know visually how to support that transition, whether it's with lighting. We work with, as, an, as a set dresser, I work with lighting a lot to make sure that whatever their vision is, whatever the director of photography's vision is, as far as lighting is concerned, on the Connors, for example, the shears are always closed in the living room at night and they're open during the day. And so there are times where I will work with the director of photography to open the shears just a little bit, depending upon what the story we're telling on the porch or whatever. We work with lighting a lot to affect emotional highs and lows. It's a delicate dance, but we're all so invested in the story, especially because on that show, the writing is so good. I will get teary-eyed from beginning to end on some episodes. Now, it's been a long time. So you've been in this business for, for all these years. What was your dream coming into the business, Charlie? Uh, that I'd pay my rent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because it's honest, right? <laughs> now, how's that dream kind of transitioned now after all these years? Other than you still have to pay the rent. <laughs> I never know how my art is going to manifest itself day to day. And so I just completed a first draft of a book. The same moment that drove me to change the dresses or grab the chair or grab the snow and put it on the rake or the telephone on the pile on the coffee maker, whatever that is, that true north that happens where I get out of my own way. I I contacted this editor who is a rather formidable well-known editor and just on a lark i sent him an email giving him an outline of my book and he responded 
and he asked me for a sample. And it was no different than auditioning a set that's been dressed. I was able to send him the sample, sure in my work, not afraid of his opinion. Because I've learned in my craft as a set dresser that someone's opinion, while it may differ from the work I put in, is not an indictment. Uh, it's the fact that I'm up for the, ch up for the change is the true mark of my discipline and my artistry that I can make the change and still give the same integrity as an artist. And he responded back and he said, clearly I do not need to tell you how to write. And so he laid out, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful response and I had my work cut out for me, but I didn't take the point is I didn't take his notes as if it threatened my baby's life. <laughs> so I have a lot of work to do. It's affected the way my work has affected my life is that it has given me the confidence to listen to all the voices in my head in a balance and not have one dominate. That's the most effective, most pragmatic result. The net result of all my years doing this is a balanced approach to the voices in my head. <laughs> All right, what are some of the moments through the years, Charlie, that you just couldn't wait to share? I can't believe I worked with this. I can't believe I got an opportunity to do this thing I never imagined. Oddly enough, this is going to sound strange. Assembling a telephone pole in the pouring rain. And it was, it was sleet, and it was, at, um, and it was late November, and we were shooting a commercial. I learned how to assemble a telephone pole in the sleet. And I don't know why that spoke to me, but it, it, it did something for me as a man. It did something to me where I identified with all the men that came before me on both sides of my family who did that kind of work. And something spoke to me about kneeling in the snow and working around all these men and women who are doing what I was doing. And then, as it often happens in this business, two years later, we had to assemble telephone poles again, and I knew how to do it. And so there was that, which, again, spoke to me. That was sort of like an opening in time, an opening in the fabric of time where I was able to feel like some other part of me was speaking, some frontiersman or something like that it felt like that was really cool and i've held on to that because it was just a beautiful sort of moment uh another thing working with vanessa redgrave on nip tuck and she and i had it was such a curious thing her daughter was on the show jolie and they played mother and daughter on the show Jolie asked me to take a photograph. Back then, cameras and phones were archaic, and you had to hold them steady almost with a vice grip to get a decent photograph. And so iPhone 1s had just come out. Jolie asked me to take a photograph of her mother, this other actor, and Jolie. So I did, and it came out. I did a good job. And Jolie said to me, oh, my God, this photograph came out so good. How did you do it? And I said very offhandedly, I said, oh, I used my third hand. I was joking. And Vanessa 
came up to me and she said, oh, I love using my third hand. And we laughed and joked and I went to craft service and she followed me to craft service. And she came up behind me and she said, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you. And I said, you're no bother. She said, who are you? And I felt like I was being spoken to by the queen. And I said, I'm Charlie, the onset dresser. She said, tell me everything about you. She said, I, I want to know more. And so I was so blown away. And it was the first time in my life. It wasn't like I was speaking to somebody greater than me. But it was the first time in my life I was open to being someone's peer. That trappings didn't matter. That I was being accepted for exactly who I was in that moment. I think those are two good examples. Do those serve you well? Oh, they're perfect. They're wonderful. All right, now what's the strangest thing you've seen on a set? And we don't have to use names or get anybody in trouble. I don't know. Do you want to hear about a practical joke? Yeah, sure. So I was working on the movie Face Off with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. I know well. Ruined us. <laughs> so it was my very first on-set dresser job, full on-set dresser job. It was like 1997 or something like that. All the, all the uh, operating stuff we saved to the end of the movie. They, it was a long haul because there was no CG on. And so it was just limited to uh, blue screen and green screen. That was about it. And so they saved all the surgical scenes to the end. And we shot them at Paramount. The surgical suite was the operating theater. And there was a recovery room with four beds. And there was also the little sort of audience, the whatever they call that, where people watch surgery being performed. And the surgical suite on that movie was designed and installed by a Norwegian company based on a real Norwegian surgical suite. The flooring, the entire, they outsourced that because all the equipment was so high end. They do that often, you know, where something is so particularly high end that they just have the real people come in and do it. We shoot a scene in the recovery room. We're going to shoot this scene. It's going to be right after lunch. And <laughs> they bring in the animatronic Nick Cage dummy. It was the only full body dummy used in the movie. All the other stuff is just face. And so, the guys who, they were brothers who built this animatronic dummy who went on to win an Academy Award for something and I don't remember what, but they did a great job. This thing looked just like Nick Cage. So they bring it in and they put it in this bed and they have all the, <laughs> I'm laughing already, they have all the suits from Paramount come in to look at the ooh ah, ooh ah, look where our 250 grand was spent because that's how much it cost. And so they all come down, they look at this thing in this bed the suits all leave. The guys come in, they grab the dummy and they lock it up in their, you know, in their lockup. And so everyone breaks for lunch and Nick Cage is standing, a guy named Marcos. I knew Marcos and he actually looked just like Nick, which as you know, is not often the case. Right. Marcos comes up to me because real Nick has to be in that same bed right after lunch. So Marcos comes up to me and he said, Oh, I'm exhausted. Is there any way I can sleep in that bed during lunch? Because I have to be in this bed for lighting. <laughs> I said, sure, why not? So I leave him and I'm the last crew member out. Electric, to save their power, has dropped the lights down to 50%. I'm walking actually off the set. This suit, her name is Abigail, and she's dressed beautifully uh, in an apricot suit. And so with blonde hair and she's followed by a guy named Thomas. I found out their names later on. She came up to me and she said, is the Nick Cage dummy still here? 
And I said, I said, and I don't know, it was like a voice that came out of my mouth that wasn't mine. <laughs> I said, right this way. I felt like a docent in a museum. So <laughs> we walk into the, the recovery room and Marcus just passed out on the bed and she walks up to the foot of the bed and I'm standing a little behind her. Thomas is behind me. Marcos is passed out. She looks at me and she says, it looks so real. So I said, again, that same voice that spoke through my mouth said, touch it. <laughs> so she walked up to his shoulder and she touched his shoulder and his eyes opened up and they had this home alone moment. They both went, ah, they screamed at each other's faces. She was literally running in place. They're screaming at each other. Thomas is screaming. I'm laughing. I cannot stop laughing. I'm laughing so hard. The tears are coming down my face. They're all screaming. She goes running out of the room. They won't stop screaming. I mean, literally, <laughs> it's so, spooked them so badly. <laughs> <laughs> she came back in <laughs> oh my gosh she was a mess I, never, I didn't really ever think this kind of thing happened her hair was a mess her blouse was pulled out I mean she literally she looked like she had been put through a dryer oh. she's all pissed off this is where I found out their names she comes walking up to me and she's like who are you and so Thomas this is when I found out his name he says Abigail was funny she goes, no, Thomas, it was not funny. Marcos, yes, it was funny. And so they're all arguing about whether it was funny or not. And I'm like, see ya. And I just sort of snuck out of the room. And so that has to be a highlight of- That's awesome. Of my almost 30 years doing this. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Okay, after almost 30 years of doing this, what's the one project, if you could go back to now, knowing what you know now, I know you're not a big uh, go back in time or change anything kind of person. We share that, but- is there a project that you wish you could go back with some of the knowledge you have now? Yeah, not, not in terms of artistic merit. There's nothing that I, hindsight is twenty twenty. So, you know, I mean, what happened was perfect because it brought me to where I am. Certainly. Right. I didn't speak up for myself. Yeah. I think those are the ones that bother us the most, right? It's the time that we should have spoke up that we don't. And then I was uh, injured quite severely on a job. Oh. I lost the use of my hands and arms for almost a year. I didn't know that. How do I not know this, Charlie? Um, well, because it isn't part of my... It didn't define you. It doesn't, yeah, it isn't, it isn't part of my yeah. story. I was on a show and I was hit by something and had my um, wrists hyperextended. My, my hands hyperextended beyond my wrists. Oh, wow. Back about five feet or so and I hit my neck on the hooves of a fiberglass cow that was suspended above about four or five feet above the ground and so and only people you know what only people in our industry and you just did what everyone in our industry whenever I've told this they never question why a cow would be suspended but anyway <laughs> any other part of life right that's how strange our life is right that that you say a cow was it was suspended from the air about four or five feet off the ground and in our business we just look at each other and go like oh okay I'm so sorry <laughs> nobody asked the obvious question that anybody else in the world were what was a cow doing? Yeah, people do. They get so caught up there. How, why was a cow up there? Um, but <laughs> um, my, if I could, I would go back and 
speak up before that happened because I just didn't think of saying anything before it happened. And so um, I can't say that, again, getting back to the Jenge philosophy, right. I pull those out and expect the wonder of my life to stand up. Yeah, I'm the same way. What is one thing that the people who work with you probably don't know? Oh, I share too much, so they know everything. <laughs> All right, are you ready? I have kind of this final run of questions that I ask everybody. So, like, the first one is, what's the first thing you look for on a call sheet? Uh, the first thing I look for on a call sheet is my call time. Perfect. What's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? Rain. <laughs> <laughs> what a nightmare, right? Yes. Bed dressing and stuff. Rain, water, everything's going to be a disaster. Any, any sort of major effect thing or, or something. Th there's a whole bunch of things that fall out of the framework of the work we're doing. And, you know, whether it's a company move or whether we're doing a press thing or whether we're doing something that is just going to drag the wheels off this thing. What's the one thing you love to see at craft service? Garlic bread. <laughs> All right. What's the thing you hate to see at craft service? Um, empty trays. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially as hard as you guys work, especially because people don't realize a lot of times set dressers, you're working between the moves, right? To try and set up that next thing. So by the time you get there, everybody else has kind of swooped in first. Yeah, it's usually that way for me all the time because, uh, and it's not just me, it's, it happens to be the position that I occupy. Although from what I understand, to be perfectly fair to me, I should only be as far away as one shout of my name. I have to just be there. I have to be on set because that's my job. And so I miss a lot of the stuff at craft service. It just disappears by the time I have a moment because I, because what I'm doing is I am the project manager. I am the one who knows. And it was on this last year at the Connors that someone said, here is the man who keeps this whole thing running. Certainly there's all sorts of aspects that I have nothing to do with, but in terms of the filter of information, because I constantly am hearing, I'm in constant motion. So it's important for me to be constantly filtering information to all these. I, the, the UPM, the first AD and I, who have to engage with everyone on the set. If you break it down, Costumes does not have to talk to the grips, lighting, all those people. They're, you know, it's sort of broken up. But the UPM, the unit production manager, the assistant director and I are the only ones who have to have engaged, in detail, complex conversations with every single department all day long, whether it's publicity, special effects, grip, laborers. The on-set dresser is the, is the only on-set personnel who has to be actively engaged in conversations with every single person on set. Okay, Charlie, how do you define success? I am an artist. I'm a successful artist because I create art, not because I'm paid for it, but I think holding my breath, waiting to be paid in order to, to define my success, that success won't happen because a train car doesn't get pulled by itself. It needs an engine. And the engine for me is defining success as practicing the art. And then the financial success comes. It needs a gestation period. It needs something to come from. Success needs something to come from. It isn't just created in a vacuum. 
So I can't be a failure as an artist and a success as an actor. Yeah, it makes sense to me. You know, I always ask people to follow up to that is usually how do you measure up to your definition of success is flowing every day. And because it's flowing every day, it's a success. Right. It's, it's, it just is success just is. And so I'm honored and blessed that I can be the successful artist that my parents were too frightened to be. So I get to live the best part of them. My mom, when I was 14 years old, my very first time taking any acting whatsoever, I had to learn how to waltz. And she walked in the front door. I was raised by a single parent. And she walked in the front door and she was tired from work all day. And I was, you know, mommy, mommy, as soon as she walked in the door. Without missing a beat, she put her purse down and took her jacket off and taught me how to waltz in the middle of the living room floor. Oh, beautiful. There was no questioning success in that moment. And the very last time, and I became a dancer. You're an excellent dancer. For people who don't know, you tap dance on set from time to time, and you have encouraged a lot of other people to get into tap or to refresh their skills. We do, actually. It's great. It's really, you know, it's turned out to be such a, a, a common talent on set. You'd be amazed. And so the very last time my mom saw me dance before she died was a waltz. My success was born before me. And I'm just a conduit for it. I like that. Thank you. All right. What's the one thing you want to see on every set? Signs that say, do not sit on the furniture. <laughs> yeah because uh people abuse that one quite a bit move, move a lot of marked furniture right <laughs> a vacuum cleaner um but the the thing i like to see is it sounds maybe kind of elitist but i love when i see other set dressers that are cleaning the set that are as attentive as i am i love seeing that the lampshades are leveled and the art is leveled and the care has been given and that the, the scene we're shooting, that the set is ready for the scene we're shooting. And so I'm a bit of a taskmaster and I'm a bit tunnel vision when it comes to that. But when I walk on the soundstage, it's a privilege, not a right. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I drive such a privilege. Oh my God. Driving every time, every time. No matter what the lot is. And I feel like I am, I've, I'm going from black and white into Technicolor, like in the Wizard of Oz, it feels like that. And so I like walking on and, I, you know, it's just that it's the feeling. It's the feeling of being, I'm not the colonel, I'm not the general, certainly, which is great. I'm a major. Mm -hmm. that's, I, that's how what I, my rank is. I think if in, in terms of a military company, I'm a major and I like walking on and I like the responsibility that comes with that. They, I get a chance to do this thing because we are somewhere between a military campaign and clowns tumbling out of a car. That's where we are. It's true. I mean, we are organized like a military and running around like clowns all at the same time. When I walk on a set, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's exterior or interior or whatever it is, if it's horrible and windy and rainy, it doesn't matter what it is, something happens. 
things with me where I assume what I am meant to do. It's perfect. Yeah. All right, now if you could eliminate one thing from a set, what would it be? Special effects. No, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> terrible. They never clean their mess. <laughs> so, no, they do great work, but it means for long days. They never clean up. <laughs> no, I love my special effects, brother. I was just a, as a cheap shot. <laughs> um, if I could eliminate something on a set, it would be snow. I mean, it sounds so pedestrian, but um, uh, it's, it's not the it's not the department special effects. It is their materials. Yeah, no, snow is one of those things because it gets everywhere and it's in everything. And, you know, you turn around twice and it's on people. And, you know, I spent half my time trying to pull snow out of Jaden's hair. (laughs) I've never walked onto a stage and seen a set where I would want to turn around and walk off. I love being on set. I I love the space. I mean, you know, I show up early and I, I walked a lot. Take in the the magic and the magistry of what we get to do. Right. And so there is this mystical, majestic nature of being in this magical world. And I value that every single time. So I, I totally well, understand. I'll amend that. What I walk on a stage, if something is dangerous, if something is not well thought out, if they've cut corners and they're doing something that is dangerous or foolish. That's good. Very good. And there have been times where that has happened, where it was season one they were doing, it was a science class where volcanoes uh, were going to explode and setting off the sprinklers. So they built this classroom science lab with rows and rows of overhead sprinklers, and they didn't build uh, a pan for the water. Oh. Exactly. And for those of us in our viewing audience who don't know what that is, when they're doing water effects, they build a pan on stage to catch the water. So it's like a kiddie pool. It's like an enormous kiddie pool. Basically is what it is. And so they thought they would cut cost and not build the set on a pan. So what happens as a result, it bleeds. And it's exactly what happened. The water went everywhere it went into the camera aisle it went into the adjoining sets right and it's also super dangerous because i mean you got all this electrical equipment you got all these things going on people walking around people can slip a bunch of reasons why this is just bad from the macro to the micro and the macro is everyone could die and the micro is i now have to do something that's taking me away from my job right it just does not there's so many things that do not have to happen that way only when it involves potentially harmful stuff does it really, do I personalize what their choices are. Aesthetically, I could care less. Right. Okay. Final two questions. You ready? How do you want those people who worked with you to remember you, Charlie? That I, oh no, am I dead? No, you're super talented, but I, I would like to know how you'd like to be remembered by your coworkers. Fun. And professional. Yeah. Success. Because you're both. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, now what is the legacy that you want to leave behind for your loved ones to take from your life? As a legacy, it's okay to be afraid of your art. Do it anyway. Oh, what a beautiful sentiment. Now, fear is not the enemy. No, inactivity or or letting it stop you from doing it. Activity is the enemy. 
Oh, see what great wisdom. I, that's like the perfect wisdom to, to end this episode of the call sheet on is that your fear not doing it is the only real risk to your art. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and I can't wait to share more.